0: It's 1931, on the outskirts of a small town in Mississippi. The sun has just set on the flat plains of the distant horizon. Darkness stretches for miles, not a soul in sight. A skinny 20-year-old man with a guitar strapped to his back is walking out here, all alone on the dirt road. His name is Robert Johnson. Friends say he has been missing for six months now. He's been walking for a long time. But he's finally here, the crossroads. A rare place where four roads meet, where the energies of countless people's lives cross at a single point, making an X right in the Earth. He's in the center of that large X. And he falls to his knees, nothing but silence. It's like he's waiting there for something, someone. He swivels his guitar from his back into his hands and begins to play. No cars, no people pass him. Finally, around midnight, he hears something behind him. Footsteps. A tall, dark man appears by Robert's left side. He is wearing an impressive white suit and a black fedora. His walking cane has an intricate carving of a serpent climbing upward. This strange man stands almost seven feet tall. His eyes are black as night. His large hand opens toward Robert, who hands him the guitar he was playing. The man tunes it. eye contact and nods and Robert nods back the man turns around and intently returns into the shadows Robert looks around no soul in sight he straps on the guitar and begins to play a song he's never heard Welcome to Creative Codex. On this episode, we will be diving into the life and myth of Robert Johnson, the most infamous and influential blues guitarist of all time. He is often called the king of the Delta blues singers. Influential for his innovative guitar playing, expressive singing and lyrical depth. Infamous for selling his soul to the devil. Or did he? We will try to separate fact from fiction, and as we try to understand the mind of Robert Johnson, we will learn insights about the nature of creative genius. What made Robert Johnson so undeniably brilliant? And what can we learn from him to improve our own craft, whatever it may be? This is Creative Codex, I am your host, MJ Dorian, the name of this episode. The Devil, and Robert Johnson. Let's begin. Have you ever wanted something so bad you would sell your soul to the devil for it? Is there anything you would sell your soul for? Fame, wealth, love? What about a remarkable ability in music which could give you all three? Fame, wealth, and love? If there is anything we learned from folktales, it's that a devil's bargain always has consequences hidden terms, often what you think you're asking for turns out not to be what you actually wanted. Perhaps you were not specific enough, perhaps you ask for success, but do not foresee the cost it demands to another area of your life. And let's not forget, there comes a time when the devil returns to cash in on his end of the bargain. For the first 19 years of his life, Robert Johnson was just like any other blues musician in Mississippi. He'd play and sing old folk tunes on his guitar and gospel songs for friends and family, occasionally trying out his luck on street corners for some change. Robert would even hang out with older and more established blues musicians like Son House and Willie Brown, trying to pick up what he could learn from them. But by their accounts, he was unremarkable. He was a decent player, but the crowds at the juke joints where people would dance and drink into the night, they would prefer the raw and emotional style of players like Sun House. But then something happens in 1931. Robert disappears. For months, no one knows where he's gone off to, and when he returns, he blows everyone away. The skill he displays is unlike anything people have seen, and unlike anything people have heard. When he plays, he looks like a man possessed. And other guitarists can't believe what they are hearing is the sound of only one guitar. The songs he sings are fresh, raw, soulful, and brilliant. Enough so that he gets the attention of a record company scouting agent and is paid to have his songs recorded. The songs are then so successful that he is asked to return for another session to record even more. And just as his flame seems to be burning brightest at 27 years old, Robert Johnson is murdered. In a sense, the devil came back to take what was promised. What's strange and tragic is that this is actually all true. But we are not giving Robert enough credit here. When you take the devil out of the equation and look at Robert's life in all its detail, you no longer see everything colored by the supernatural curse of the devil's bargain. Instead, you see a rare young man succeeding against enormous odds. With a dedication to his craft that is so remarkable, it may as well have been supernatural. That is the real story of Robert Johnson. But even in that story, as we shall see, the devil still plays a part. Part One. Against the Odds. Robert Leroy Johnson was born on May 8th, 1911, in a small town called Hazelhurst in Mississippi. His mother, Julia Ann Majors, gave birth to him in a cypress-wood cabin with a tin roof whose walls were lined with newspaper and cardboard. His family was poor, almost destitute at times, and Julia was a single mother at the time with three other children from her first marriage. When Robert was later an adult, one of his distinguishing features would be an occasionally lazy eye and sunken wiry hands, both of these conditions are thought to be a result of being malnourished as a newborn. But this isn't a commentary on Julia's care for him as a mother. From all accounts, she did her best. Robert Johnson says as much in his song, Drunken Hearted Man, with the lyrics My father died and left me, my poor mother done the best that she could.
1: My poor father died and left me, and my mother done the best that she could. My poor father died and left me, and my mother done the best that she could. Every man love that game you call love, but it don't mean no man no good.
0: The possibility that Robert was malnourished as a newborn is instead a reflection on the incredible hardship and unforgiving circumstances of this particular time and place in America. The safety net of welfare didn't exist in America until 1935, so in places like Mississippi in 1911, if you were black, you either worked the field or you and your children starved as the authors of the book Up Jumped the Devil State. Although sharecropping and tenant farming replaced the slave system, there was little actual difference in social and working conditions. And since many black families were illiterate, they were often horribly exploited by plantation owners. In the first two years of Robert Johnson's life, Julia and her children moved from place to place in search of stability and work. She finally managed to make an arrangement with her first husband, Charles Spencer, who was now in Memphis, and they settled with his new family in their house for a time. But Julia now needed to travel further for steady work, which meant she would need to be away from young Robert for extended periods of time. He was now in the care of people who were complete strangers to him. Later in life, he would truly consider the Spencers like his family, but in that first year it must have been traumatic for a child of only two years old. There was one clear positive, though. The Spencer family lived in Memphis, Tennessee, at a time when it was a pretty exciting place to be. It was an urban center with plenty of shops to explore and people to see. And it even had the R.R. Church Auditorium and Park where audiences would enjoy concerts by the most famous black performers of the day. The Black Patty Troubadours, the Smart Set with S.H. Dudley, and the Fisk Jubilee Singers. For the six years that Robert stayed in Memphis with the Spencer family, he experienced his first significant introductions to music. In many ways, there is no doubt these were foundational moments for him, which shaped him as a musician and a performer later on. You can imagine young Robert, at seven years old, walking down Beale Street, holding hands with his half-sister Carrie, passing guitarists playing on street corners, listening to jug bands performing in coffee shops, the sounds of spirituals, blues and pop tunes spilling out onto the street
1: One summer day just when she left me she's going to stay but now she's gone I don't worry I'm sitting on top of the world
0: Then there was the good fortune of being around music at home, too. Charles Spencer, the father of the house, and Julia's ex-husband, was an amateur musician himself, playing the guitar as well as other instruments. And Robert's stepbrother, Charles Leroy, is known to have even taught him guitar and piano. When introducing himself at the time and for years onward, Robert would use the name Robert Spencer. This was becoming his family life. One of the greatest benefits of living in Memphis at this time was the education it gave kids like Robert. There was an initiative at the time largely fought for by a schoolteacher named Julia Hooks. She became the grand champion of black education in the city, creating a successful model that other cities would soon follow. The quality of schooling meant that by the age of seven, Robert knew how to read and write, which for that time was more an exception than a norm. In the book, Up Jumped the Devil, the authors say, attending any school at all, but especially an urban one, distinguished Robert from other blues musicians of his era. Robert Johnson's ability to read and write was atypical. Most of Robert's musical contemporaries were largely functionally illiterate, simply because they were black plantation children. Unquote. But, unfortunately, The benefits of living in Memphis with the Spencers would come to an abrupt end when Robert's mother, Julia, married a sharecropper named Will Dusty Willis, and the two of them settled on a plantation in Arkansas. In 1919, Julia came to Memphis to bring Robert back with her to live and work on that plantation. Once again, young Robert was being uprooted to unfamiliar surroundings and expected to form a father-son respect to a complete stranger that was now married to his mother. Gone were the city atmosphere, circuses, music concerts, and progressive schooling, and they were now replaced by the plantation life of endless cotton fields. But it was here, under these more limited circumstances, living on plantations, that Robert really became introduced to the blues. A style of music he would master and reimagine. A style of music that would spark the birth of rock and roll in the 50s. A style of music that would even earn Robert Johnson a Grammy award 52 years after his death. A style known by many at the time as the devil's music. Part two, the blues. So what is the blues? Well, for starters, it's a style of music which has existed for at least 150 years. That's the earliest that historians can trace. But since it was first in oral tradition, it's highly likely to be even older. So it's important to note that it was being played and listened to before it was being recorded and documented. Robert Johnson didn't invent the blues. When he was born in 1911, it was a music tradition which was already at least 40 years old. My first introductions to the blues were when I was a teenager, listening to artists like Jimi Hendrix and The Doors. And I would notice that certain songs of theirs would just stick out to me as having something special, a a mood, a swagger, a depth of expression. It's only now, in hindsight, that I realize all those incredible songs that I loved were the blues, pumped up to 11 and run through an amplifier. So many of my favorite Jimi Hendrix songs are the blues. Red House, Voodoo Child, Slight Return, even a hidden gem from the album South Saturn Delta called Here He Comes, Loverman check that one out. Jimmy just blows my mind every time. All these tracks and others from him, which I've heard countless times over the years and still love, these are the blues. Then from The Doors, there's Backdoor Man, Roadhouse Blues, When the Music's Over, and countless other songs by countless other bands who made music then, Led Zeppelin, Eric Clapton, Rolling Stones, and who make music now, Black Keys, Gary Clark Jr., Jack White, They all owe a tremendous, tremendous debt to the blues. So, what makes a song blues? It's deceptively simple. A 12-bar blues structure and a blues scale. That's it. It doesn't even have to be on a guitar. You could technically play blues on an accordion. Doesn't mean anyone would listen. I would listen. Let's make sense of the first element, a 12-bar blues structure. Here's the song Sweet Home Chicago by Robert Johnson. Let's give a listen to the first section. A small section that introduces the song, and then there's this steady, danceable rhythm. This particular rhythm is called a boogie shuffle. It gives you a very clear sense of a beat. In blues, we group four beats per bar, so when musicians count along to a song, they count in fours. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So we just counted every beat in every bar. Now, let's listen to Sweet Home Chicago again, and I will count the beats out loud. But as I do that, you count the amount of bars that go by. Try to tally them up. For example, one, two, three, four, that's one bar. And one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, would be two bars, and so on. Okay, here goes. Tally up the bars I'm counting. One, two, So, how many did you get? I got 12. If you got more or less, rewind it and try again. If you got 12, then you are halfway to understanding the blues. All the Hendrix and Doors songs I mentioned earlier share this 12-bar blues structure. We may not realize it while we're listening to it, but it's there. The main sections of each song are made of these 12-bar structures that you just counted. And of course, hundreds of other hit songs by bands in the 60s and 70s and 50s share this specific blues structure too. You honestly don't notice it until you look for it. The song In the Summertime uses it. The James Brown tune I Feel Good uses it. The Led Zeppelin song When the Levee Breaks uses it. It's Safe to say that rock and roll, soul, and jazz wouldn't exist without it. The other key element to making some blues is a blues scale. Sweet Home Chicago is in the key of F-sharp, so the notes of the scale are F-sharp, G-sharp, A, A A-sharp, C-sharp, D-sharp, F-sharp. These are your building blocks as a musician. As we said earlier, though, they are deceptively simple. Just a structure and a scale. What may take you five minutes to learn the basics of, like we have here, will take you another few years or even a lifetime to master. Because to put it all together, you will need to learn phrasing. Phrasing is what gives the blues its magic. The way a voice bends the notes as it sings, the way it slides from one note to the other, the way it draws out one word here with vibrato or touches another there with an inflection. These are the elements of phrasing, and by the time Robert Johnson recorded Sweet Home Chicago in 1936, he was a master of phrasing, on the guitar and in his singing. Just listen to how his voice dances around these notes. First, he slides into the first word and also slides out of it. I... Gives us another few notes. Baby, want... And then has an agile little inflection on the last word, go. To go. You may have heard someone refer to someone else's singing as bluesy, This is usually what they mean. As you listen to hundreds of these blues-oriented songs, you download the information into your mind of what blues singing sounds like, the ingredients of blues phrasing. There's no cheating that. You honestly can't learn it from a book or a college course. You gotta sit down with someone who knows and they will teach it to you or you gotta sit down with your favorite records and copy what you're hearing until you get it. What's fascinating about Robert Johnson, is that he learned through both ways. He was the first generation of musicians who were learning their craft by studying recorded music on old vinyl records. But he was also born in the thick of it, the deep south, the home of the blues. He couldn't walk down a street corner or walk by a juke joint without hearing it and absorbing the influences of good musicians around him. So his learning was both deliberate, but also organic. In 1920, at the age of nine, Robert Johnson and his mother traveled 30 miles southwest of Memphis to a plantation in Crittenden County, Arkansas. There he would live with his mother's new husband, Will Dusty Willis, a hardworking sharecropper with his own farm. As the book, Up Jumped the Devil, states, Robert Johnson stared at the endless plantation fields that lay opposite the levees, shielding them from the Mississippi River. Cotton was everywhere. Gone was the life that he had known. Now, there was nothing but dirt. Dirt roads, dirt farms, and earthworks, as far as the eyes could see. There were no schools for black children. This place, Lucas Township, was vast and empty. An intelligent, city-fied nine-year-old had been uprooted and placed in an alien environment, the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta, unquote. Although Robert was only nine, it was expected that he would start working on the plantation immediately, helping his stepfather with the field labor. This left no time for school. This also meant that he missed his Memphis family that much more. The book continues. Sharecropping cotton was hard labor. After his new stepfather would prepare the fields by mule-drawn plow, Robert then had to help him plant the cotton seeds. As the plants grew, chopping cotton, removing the weeds that grew between the plants with handheld hose, picks, shovels, and rakes, made his hands blister and ache. But the worst job, the picking of cotton, began in late August or early September. Each picker carried a long white sack. 12-foot sacks were standard for an adult male. As a child, Robert was only expected to haul a six or eight-foot sack. But it was still back-breaking labor, and the sharp leaves of the cotton ball would hurt his hands as he pulled the prize from its shell. After he filled his bag, he'd haul it to a waiting cotton wagon, have it weighed and dumped, and then start all over again. A good adult picker could fill four or five large sacks a day, roughly 350 pounds of cotton. Robert was lucky to pick around 100 pounds, and even on the hottest days he had to wear a long-sleeve shirt and hat for protection from the sun. In Memphis, He had gone to school from morning till afternoon. On his stepfather's farm, he worked from can to can't. From daybreak, when he can see, to nightfall, when he can't." Robert hated this work. In the years that followed, as he became a teenager, him and Dusty would get into heated arguments about the fieldwork. As Robert's passion for music developed and he began to play instruments, It seemed that Dusty's initial disdain for music grew even stronger. On the occasions that Dusty found out Robert had snuck off to do music instead of work, he would get a beating when he came home. Of course, this only made Robert want to spend less and less time at home. But there was one place that he could go to where he was accepted and his interest in music was encouraged, the juke joint. Juke joints were a common aspect of plantation life. For a weekend, someone would convert the first floor of their home into a small dance hall. Homemade food would be sold and live musicians would be hired. Juke joints were the place to be on any given weekend, full of boisterous crowds and heavy drinking, a way to let off steam from a week of backbreaking fieldwork. It's said that the soul of African-American music starts from the field songs and spirituals of early African slaves. That original musical seed then branches out into two distinct styles, gospel and blues. Gospel is reserved for church on Sunday morning, and the blues for the juke joints on Saturday night. And it's here that you can imagine the association of devil music begins. As men and women would spend the night partying, dancing, and drinking while listening to the blues, the following morning's church service would include a pastor denouncing the juke joints as dens of temptation, taking money away from the church, and seducing good people with that devil music. At these juke joints, Robert would see blues musicians come and go. They were often male guitarists who would pass through the various towns in the Delta playing juke joints, earning cash, and having a good time. As Robert developed his own musical abilities from records and soaking in influences from local musicians like Sunhouse, he would see the blues musician life as a ticket out of this very limited existence he found himself in a ticket out of working on a cotton field for the rest of his life. A blues musician could travel freely, town to town, hopping on a train, getting off where they please. They don't have to answer to anybody. And they can make money fast. Robert noticed that playing on street corners in cities could earn you quick money, and getting hired to play a juke joint could get you money, free liquor, and the attention of young women. Robert's first instruments were a diddly bow and a harmonica. A diddly bow is this makeshift slide guitar. You make it by securing a long metal wire to the side of a wood cabin using screws. Then you can slide a glass bottle on it as you pluck the string to create melodies. His next instrument was a homemade cigar box guitar. Although it wasn't perfect, he played that thing like crazy. There was no doubt his inclination to pursue becoming a musician, despite these severe limitations. It came from a deep and genuine place inside of him. Eventually, at the age of 16, Robert's half sister, Carrie, took him to a general store in Memphis and she bought him his first official wooden guitar. The thing was missing two strings, but that didn't stop Robert. The book, up, jump the Devil states, Robert played those four strings constantly, driving everyone within earshot crazy from his practicing, until he was finally able to acquire a dime to buy the two missing strings. Having a real guitar not only began to improve Robert's playing, it also helped him grow up and leave behind the things his other friends still found interesting. Wink Clark spoke about how that change manifested itself. He said, We'd go out on the levee, side of the road somewhere, and we'd shoot marbles, but he'd play guitar. For the rest of his life, Robert and a guitar would be inseparable. Unquote. Curiously, as a side note, this is remarkably similar to what many people say about Jimi Hendrix when he was younger. Him and his guitar were inseparable. On some occasions, people remember they would be at a fancy restaurant and there would be Jimmy with his electric guitar sitting at the table just practicing. It speaks to the joy that music brings you when you devote yourself to it. But it's also a reflection on the all-devouring quality of the early years of genius. Many times when looking at the early years of someone who later becomes a creative genius, we see they were first consumed and obsessed by their craft. They weren't born with a gift, they developed it. It isn't a normal type of hobby or interest to them. It is obsession. This kind of person consumes everything there is to learn about their craft, but the craft they are practicing also consumes them in a very real sense. This is so important to acknowledge because this side of the equation has nothing to do with deals with the devil. It has to do with a remarkable young man, dedicating thousands of hours to one goal, to become the best blues musician anyone ever heard. Part three, Love in Vain. 1927 to 1938. Eleven years. Eleven years from when Robert Johnson picks up his first real guitar to when he dies a legend of music history. What happened in those eleven years that both made him so undeniably brilliant and, conversely, set his train toward a tragic end? It's time to answer those questions. This part of the story starts with love like all good stories, but is filled with the kinds of twists and turns that would make even a Hollywood movie seem implausible. By 1928, at the age of 17, Robert Johnson was beginning to play in juke joints. He was putting together a repertoire of folk songs, gospel, blues, and the popular songs of the day. He was getting hired as a musician at the Clack grocery store for every weekend, It was a local convenience store in the daytime which converted to a juke joint at night. It was there that Robert fell head over heels for a young woman named Virginia Travis. She was 14 years old, three years younger than Robert, and he was immediately smitten by her beauty and sweetness. She lived in a neighboring town with her family, and in the coming weeks, he would travel just to see her, giving her his undivided attention, He courted her with his best songs, and before long, the two were a couple. On Sunday, February 17th, 1929, Robert and Virginia were married in Penton, at the plantation home of Virginia's grandmother. It was a bright, clear day with cool air, the weather signaling the approach of spring. Robert even provided some of the music for the party after the ceremony. Robert and Virginia were taking their future seriously, which meant they were going to need a reliable source of income. The book Up Jumped the Devil continues. Something profound had indeed happened in Robert's life. He was in love. And although it went against his natural inclinations, he uncharacteristically agreed to put his musical ambitions aside to become a sharecropper to support his young wife. It took love for Robert to accept, at least temporarily, the fieldwork that Dusty Willis had so long wanted him to do." This was a huge symbolic gesture on Robert's part. Everyone knew how much he hated fieldwork. The locals would comment to each other, Hey, isn't that the blues man from Robbinsville that plays the juke joints on Saturday? What's he doing behind a plow? By all accounts, their life together was one of happiness and love. In the late summer of 1929, Virginia became pregnant. Robert was a proud and protective husband. One time, when they were in the backseat of a friend's car, the driver hit a rough patch on the dirt road, causing the car to bounce wildly. And Robert shouted, Man, be careful, my wife's percolatin'. as the birth of their first child was growing near in 1930 virginia wanted to be in the comfort of her family's home up north where her grandmother would help with the birth robert stayed behind to continue working their farm but with his wife away the lure of the blues tempted him again he picked up his guitar and made a plan he would play in juke joints on his way up north making the extra money they needed and arrive just in time to see their newborn baby. On the night of April 8th, 1930, Virginia went into labor. As she laid there, in her grandmother's home, it became clear she was experiencing a difficult birth. Dr. G.M. Shaw of Robbinsville was called and visited her on April 9th to try to help her deliver. But Virginia's condition grew worse, and at 2 a.m., The following morning, she died in childbirth along with her unborn child. On the death certificate, the doctor wrote her cause of death as acute nephritis, childbirth, and eclampsia, which is a high blood pressure complication that results in seizures. Several weeks passed as Robert made his way up Highway 1, playing at juke joints and parties still unaware of the death of his wife and baby as the book Up Jump the Devil continues. When Robert arrived at the Thomas home in Penton, he was horrified at the news of Virginia's death. But his sorrow and guilt did not end there. According to Mac McCormick's research, her family and friends, still reeling from the tragedy, condemned Robert for being absent when she died. Seeing his guitar, they believed his pursuit a godless lifestyle as an evil musician contributed to her death. Their anger focused on that instrument, and they harassed him about why he would have brought his guitar and taken so long if he had not been playing jukes and parties on his journey. They claimed that Virginia's death and that of her child were due to Robert being out playing the devil's music. Robert's friends said he began to believe that he was to blame for her death, and he turned his back on the church and God. He began to blaspheme so badly when he was drinking that those around him would leave the room in fear of being struck down by the Almighty. Piano player Memphis Slim said this of Johnson's behavior. And he was about one of the most evil men, Robert Johnson. Every time he'd get drunk, he'd cuss God, and he'd go to cursing God out, and he could empty a house quick, because nobody wanted to be around him. They were afraid. He'd done called God some of the worst names you ever heard of. Then he'd look around, and it wouldn't be nobody in there but him. Everybody said, get away from that fool, because God gonna strike him down, and he might kill me too." Unquote. To the friends that Robert made in the coming years, he wouldn't share much about his personal life. Most of them never heard of Virginia and the baby. They just knew him as a talented musician with bizarre quirks. He was a heavy drinker, prone to cursing God, and whenever he pleased, he would just get up and leave without even saying goodbye. still felt a certain closeness with his extended family in Memphis. He visited them in May of 1930 to share in his grief, and shortly after that, he moved back in with his mother, Julia, and his stepfather, Dusty Willis, this time on a plantation in Tunica. Dusty expected Robert to work the fields, and when he wouldn't, the beating started again. But instead of moving back to Memphis, Robert stuck around there in the Delta region because he could continue studying the blues from the musicians he idolized. Musicians only playing in that area, like Willie Brown, Charlie Patton, Willie Moore, and Son House. These men were local rock stars, no doubt about it. And although Robert wasn't at their level yet, he was beginning to get recognition for his skills too. Willie Moore remembered that when Robert played some covers of popular songs, The girls would get so excited by the blues songs that Robert would need protection from them to keep from getting interrupted. He says, I tell you one thing, he wasn't wild, but I tell you them gals pulled at him all the time. We'd be playing and have to put up a protection around him. Them gals you see would jump up, unquote. One of these girls who became enamored by Robert's playing and charm was Virgie Smith. She was a 16-year-old who would stand outside the juke joint with her friend, Eula May, and just listen to the soulful music spilling out of that building. In an interview, Eula May describes Robert Johnson first trying to romance her sister. She says, He come up here to court my sister, and granny ran him off. He wouldn't know church person, because he played the blues. She knew that, so she wouldn't let him see her. She knew what he wanted. Me and Virgie Smith used to sneak off and hear them all playing together on Saturday nights. We didn't go in. We were still girls and our parents wouldn't allow us to go inside. So we'd listen outside to the music. We were Christian folks and they didn't allow us to be where the blues was played." Unquote. Virgie Smith wanted to meet this handsome bluesman. She figured out a way through a mutual friend and when they met, Robert fell for her too. Pouring his affections toward her, serenading her with his songs. It had been about a year since Virginia and their unborn child tragically died. Maybe he was ready to try love again. Or maybe he was looking for a woman to temporarily fill the hole left by his wife's tragic death. Whatever the case was, Robert and Virgie Smith had chemistry, their romance blossomed, and things got physical quickly. There was even one time, in early April, Eula Mae and her boyfriend met Virgie Smith and Robert in the woods, and the two couples watched each other, kissing and having sex. Robert and Virgie's relationship continued for a few more weeks, and then Virgie missed a month of her period. She was pregnant with Robert's child. He was surprised, but he welcomed the news. Perhaps this could be the second start he was looking for after the tragedy with Virginia. Robert made it clear that he wanted her to join him on the road and leave for Memphis, where they could have a fresh start together, get married, and have their baby near his family there. There was no way he was going to risk losing a wife and child again. But Virgie Smith was only 16 years old, and her very religious parents condemned her relationship with Robert and refused to let her go with him, echoing a phrase to his face that was now becoming all too familiar. He could never be a good husband or father because he was a wandering blues musician playing that devil music.
1: And I followed her to the station with a suitcase in my hand. And I followed her to the station a suitcase in my hand well it's hard to tell it's hard to tell when all your love's in vain all my love's in vain
0: robert's son claude was born on december 12th 1931. the smiths effectively cut robert out from the family and Even though he would still try to visit in the coming years and help by giving money to them, they would not allow him to see the boy. Blues music was banned in the household, and although Claude showed interest in the guitar, he was not allowed to learn to play. It must have felt like fate or some unknown forces were telling Robert he could never be a family man. Life kept stealing it away from him. The only thing he truly did have was the blues, the only reliable constant in his life. And so what's a rambling man to do in such a situation? Robert hit the road, hopping on the next train out from Hazlehurst.
1: When the train it left the station, with two lights on behind In the train and left the station with two lights on behind. Well the blue light was my blue and the red light was my mind All my loves in vain.
0: So what do you think? Did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil? Looking at his life up until this point, he certainly had every reason to. Reasons such as he never had a stable home. He never knew who his real father was. He desperately wanted more than just the plantation life. He wanted to be the greatest blues musician of his time. He tragically lost his first wife, Virginia, and their unborn child. He was denied the opportunity to be a father and husband with Virgie Smith, the mother of his second child. And he was ostracized by half the people he met as doing the work of the devil. Then there is the six month span where he goes missing. And that's true. What happened there? Where did he go? Why was he murdered at 27 years old? Well, we are going to cover all that in the next episode. That's right, this is a two-parter. You didn't think I would just leave you hanging. I'm almost finished with part two of The Devil and Robert Johnson, and you can expect to listen to it exactly one week from now, on Sunday, August 2nd. That's when the next episode will be released. Until then, I recommend you check out all the incredible music from this time period, a lot of which you heard during this episode music from the 1930s, that was specifically coming out of the Deep South. Listen to some of my favorites, like obviously Robert Johnson, but then there's Sunhouse. check out the Mississippi Sheiks, Blind Willie Johnson, and Elizabeth Cotton. That's Cotton spelled C-O-T-T-E-N, and countless others. Just search Mississippi Delta Blues, and you will stumble on crazy good stuff. Like in all the episodes of Creative Codex, there is so much we didn't cover. I could happily share a few dozen more anecdotes about Robert Johnson's life, and there's wonderful memories of him that Anya Anderson, his stepsister, shares in her book, Brother Robert, which paints him as a warm and charming person who loved spending time with his extended family. But in the end, I wanted to create a cohesive structure that articulates the points I was hoping to make with clarity. My first motivation was emotionally engaging you to Robert, the remarkable young man facing tremendous odds. That's why we spent so much time talking about the first half of his tragically short life. 27 years old. He died at an age so many other great artists and musicians have died. The infamous Club 27 topic. Some of the other names on that list being Jimi Hendrix, Janice Joplin, Jim Morrison, Jean Michel Basquiat, Amy Winehouse, and many others. In terms of the research for this episode, the one biography of Robert that was better than any documentary and painted an incredibly rich portrait is Up Jumped the Devil by bruce conforth and gail dean wardlow the other reading material was anya anderson's book brother robert which by some happy coincidence was just released last month as i started working on this episode synchronicity as young might say and one of the noteworthy aspects of that book is the cover which features an authentic photograph of robert johnson that anya anderson had kept secret for almost a hundred years. She says in the book that people used and abused Robert's life story and his music so much after his death that she decided to keep this one remaining photograph out of the hands of people who were just looking to make a quick buck. The photograph shows him flashing a warm and charming smile with his guitar in his hands. You can see it if you search Brother Robert book. The photo was taken at a local photo booth while they were out for a walk together one afternoon. The reason it's so noteworthy is that until last month there were only two confirmed photographs of Robert Johnson, and a lot of fakes. The two confirmed photographs were one in his pinstripe suit and hat, looking like a professional jazz musician. And the other being the picture featured on the cover of the book Up Jump the Devil, in which. Robert looks like a road-worn musician, weathered by a life experience, with a cigarette hanging from his lips and his trusty guitar displayed like a life partner. It's curious to consider the motivation behind all three of these photographs, taken in the 1930s when photographs were rare and often deliberate events. The pinstripe suit one is clearly meant to impress is manufactured for the effect. He certainly didn't just walk around like that, and it was likely taken before his first recording session, possibly intended to display his professionalism to record company scouts. The second photograph, which shows a rough and weathered Robert, the one with a cigarette, was likely taken after the two recording sessions. It feels more authentic than the pinstripe one. He isn't attempting to show a pretty face In fact, he looks defiant. Maybe he was drunk at the time, maybe he was jaded by the realities of life, or maybe it offers us a brief glimpse of his darker side, the side he so often shares with us in his songs. It's often this photo that helps sell the devil's bargain myth, as he looks tortured and possessed in a sense. And that third photograph of Robert's handsome and winning grin Paints yet another side of his personality. Clearly, he is charming us. Maybe he was having an especially good day. Maybe he wanted to share this portrait with the new romantic interest he was courting. Whatever the case, it's heartwarming to see him enjoying himself. There are two documentaries I recommend if you would rather watch than read. The first you can find on YouTube. It's called Robert Johnson, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl. It includes clips of interviews with Robert's actual friends and folks who traveled with him playing juke joints in the 1930s, so that's really neat. And the other one being one you can find on Netflix, called Remastered Devil at the Crossroads. It's more of a generalized approach, but still entertaining. Robert Johnson, the myth, has made appearances in a lot of other random places. And every time he does, his story gets retold and the myth becomes even stronger. There is the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, where a character named Tommy Johnson tags along with the Soggy Bottom Boys, and it's claimed he sold his soul to the devil. Then there is the 1986 film, Crossroads, which stars Ralph Macchio two years after the uh, Karate Kid hit. Ralph Macchio starts as a guitar prodigy who is studying classical guitar at Juilliard, but becomes fascinated by the blues and the story of Robert Johnson. He manages to track down Willie Brown, one of Robert's blues musician friends. Willie Brown is one of the few people who appear by name in Robert's lyrics. He says his name in both takes of Crossroad Blues. The film goes on with Ralph having to face the Devil's Choice guitarist in a guitar duel to win back the soul of Willie Brown. Fun stuff. If you enjoyed this episode and what we are doing here at Creative Codex, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, where you can join other supporters and any tier level of support gets you access to various perks. From as little as $1, you gain access to exclusive supporter only creativity tip episodes, and from $10 and up, you receive a downloadable copy of the Creative Codex soundtrack album which features all your favorite music from the show so far. Think of it like background music to spur your own daydreams and creative pursuits. You can find all this on patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. If you're dying to say something about this episode, or if you have a question, please head over to our brand new subreddit. Just head to reddit.com, that's two D's, R-E-D-D-I-T, and search Creative Codex. Please join the community we have over there. It's a wonderful place to talk about creativity, and I'm excited to answer any questions people have about these topics we are exploring. I want to thank all my Patreon supporters. You make this podcast possible. I'm hoping to start putting some money aside to do advertising so we can share this show with a larger audience. Thank you to Tim K, Blake Huggins, Vero, J. Booth, Anudi Valerio, Jstax, MA53N, and DVM. You guys rock, I appreciate you. I've received tremendous feedback on the guided meditation episodes, so I'm hoping to do more in that regard soon as well. And we are finally starting a YouTube channel, which will also hopefully share the show with a larger audience. Please head over to YouTube and search Creative Codex in channels and subscribe to get those updates in your feed. Thank you so much for all your support. This is Creative Codex and I am MJ Dorian. I'll see you here in seven days for The Devil and Robert Johnson Part 2. It's going to be a good one till then.